morning. Uh, I'm Steve Robertson, one of your missionaries uh, living temporarily in Columbia, Tennessee. My apologies to this aisle. We, we seem to get to know this aisle a little bit better, but uh, I'm Steve, and uh, it's this opportunity we have today to look at the scriptures together. Uh, we are moving from uh, the prodigal son and hovering just for a Sunday on Jonah chapter 4. Jonah 4 uh, in your pew Bibles is page 775, or it's there in your worship guides or in your own Bibles. And uh, the word of the Lord says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better to me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given to us, the word that are words of life and of truth, words that meet us in our need. And we ask by your spirit that you would meet us in our need, that you would show us the beauty of Christ and that you would continue to conform us to his image as you've promised. We ask that in his name. Amen. Our daughter loves cactuses, or cacti, or whatever the plural is for the pointy little plants in the desert. And uh, because of this, with her birthday this past weekend, uh, one of the little gifts for her were some pins in the shape of cactuses, without the spikes, but in, in the shape. And... Uh, she opened the package, and she looked at them, and it had a tip that looked like it was supposed to twist, not, not unlike the pins you have there in your pews, uh, if the kids haven't stolen them. And she twisted it, and it came apart. And then there were five of us in the room trying to figure out how on earth is this pin supposed to work? We don't see the mechanism, what's going on, and, and we agonized over it, and finally uh, we resorted to Google, and we found out that the twisty thing wasn't a twisty thing, it was a cap. And you just pulled it off. 
and there was the tip of the pen and everything was just fine. Uh, but in the process, not understanding what the pen really was and not appreciating it, not using it correctly, uh, we did harm. And, and we were suddenly getting out tools, trying to pull pieces back out that got stuck. Uh, because when you don't understand what's really going on and you do something the wrong way and you utilize it the wrong way, you do harm. Uh, having a correct fundamental understanding of something is utterly important. And when you don't, things go awry. And perhaps the two largest factors that will most affect how you live your life, what you'll do, how you'll do it, how you think and feel about that, how you will think and feel about and treat others, how they will experience you, Two big things. Number one, what do you think about God? What is your understanding of him? Who is he? What is he like? Uh, what, what, what is it that drives him? And how is he towards us? And, and then the second question springboards off of that, and that's how do I feel about that? Understanding or thinking I understand who God is, how do I respond? How do I feel about that? Do I embrace that? Do I reject that? Do I want to change that? Do I rebel against it? What, what is it in us once we see who God is? And those two things are going to have seismic impacts through every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our being. And this story about Jonah starts to help us unpack that. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the church and what is the church and how does it fit together and, and coming to this idea, what we were seeing in the parable of the prodigal son, this fundamental understanding of, of this God who embraces lost people. This, this God who embraces the broken, who sees that first hint of repentance and who rushes out and gives the hug and the kiss and the robe and the sandals and slaughters the fattened calf. This God who embraces and, and coming back into the house and, and then seeing this other son with this other idea of what is the father like and I don't even wanna come into the party. And when we get to Jonah, what we really have is something of a prefiguring of that narrative where this isn't actually new news when Jesus is telling the people this parable. This is actually a story that we've been seeing uh, throughout the scriptures and, and it's highlighted remarkably in Jonah. So what's going on? Uh, we, we, we started uh, our reading with the word but, and that's usually not a good place to start a reading. But, uh, but it's referring back to the first three chapters. What happens in the book of Jonah is that God says to Jonah, one of his prophets in, uh, in Israel, in the northern kingdom, he says to Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh and preach against the city. Tell them I'm going to destroy the city. And so Jonah goes, uh, Nineveh's 500 plus miles eastwards. And Jonah says, that's great. I'm going to go westwards to the Mediterranean coast, and I'm going to get on a ship, and I'm going to go to Tarshish. And now Tarshish, uh, there's debate about where it really was, uh, but it was as far west as you could go 
that anyone in Israel knew about. He's saying, you want me to go 500 miles east? I'm going to go as far west as I can go. I am going to get as absolutely far away from Nineveh as I possibly can. And God's not going to have any of that. And he causes a big storm. And in the midst of the big storm, Jonah realizes what's going on. This, this is because I've disobeyed. But rather than say, guys, let's turn the boat around. I need to obey. He says, can you help me commit suicide? Throw me overboard. And he goes overboard. And God rescues him. And, and, and there's this beginning of dawning, it looks like in Jonah, of saying he's understanding God and his grace. And, and he is sped up on the shore by this great fish, and he goes to Nineveh. And he preaches. And the people respond. By the way, Jonah's probably been preaching for a long time in Israel, and the people don't respond. He goes to Nineveh. And the people respond, and they humble themselves. And, and, and the king even says, we, we have to stop doing violence. We need fundamental change. And, and have they come to a full point of faith in God and conversion? Probably not. But, but they've come to this point, they say, we, we, we need to seek this God who has the power of life and death. Jonah, you've gone on your ministry, your missionary journey. Uh, it has been remarkably successful. How do you feel about that? And uh, our scripture says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry, uh, or it was evil to him. This, this is Jonah getting angry, and, and not just kind of mild anger. This isn't your three-year-old with a temper tantrum. Uh, or it's not you responding to the temper tantrum saying, don't make me count to three. Uh, this, this is not somebody on Facebook with their political rant. Not even Nick Saban chewing out the officials. This is someone saying, I'm so angry I'd like to die. Something that we hear multiple times in this passage from Jonah. He's saying, I want to die. Uh, Hebrew has uh, a variety of words to describe anger, same as we do in English. And this is one of the strongest. It's, this is not just, I'm angry, I'm mad, I'm frustrated. This is, I am irate, I am furious. Uh, literally, the, the word has a connotation of burning with anger. I'm incensed. This is what Jonah's saying. He says, I am incensed and looking in, you're sort of like, okay, this is successful ministry why are you angry, Jonah? And that's when we find out. He is going to blame God. He's mad at God, and he's mad at God, and he's still holding out for the hope of violence against this city, uh, but he's angry. Why? Because God didn't come through with destroying the Ninevites. And why didn't God come through with destroying the Ninevites? Because God was acting exactly according to his own nature. And he says, God, I am mad at you for being you. I am mad at you. Because, what does he say, verses 2 and 3? He says, oh, Lord, is this not why I said what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
He says, I knew that. Dadgummit, I knew you were going to forgive them. I don't want that. I didn't want that. I resisted that with everything in me. I didn't want your mercy poured out on them. They're not Israelites. They're not part of my tribe. They do all these terribly wicked things. God, why would you forgive them? And, and, and he's, he's coming in with remarkable clarity in his theology. I know who God is. In Exodus 34, Moses had said, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't withstand seeing all of my glory, but I will allow you to see some. And he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he passes before him, and he makes this declaration. And, and it's word for word here. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is God's self-identification, his self-revelation. Says, this is who I am. When, when, when you think of me, think of this. And he, he does go on. He says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father's on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And, and there's this thing in us that just cringes. God just says, I judge. And yet when we look at the scriptures, it's saying, my forgiveness and my grace is abundant. Numerically, it's 250 times bigger than my judgment in this passage. He's saying, yes, you need to be in right relationship with me. For those entering into a relationship with me, there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness. And this is the father rushing out to that prodigal coming back and embracing him. This is God saying, this, this is my nature, and this is not a one-off reference. Uh, this is one of those scriptures that's repeated over and over again. In the Old Testament, it's in Numbers, it's in Nehemiah, it's in Psalms, it's in Joel, it's in Nahum. Again and again, talking about the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And God is saying, fundamentally, this is who I am. Fundamentally, God in his posture towards those who've been made in his image is, I want to show this to you. I want you to see my beauty I want you to understand the depth of my steadfast love. I want you to experience mercy, to experience forgiveness, and to enter into the joy of the Father. And that is he wants us to know the overwhelmingly abundant nature of his grace that his default posture is one of graciousness. That God's default setting is pour out steadfast love. Do we believe that? Do we know that? Do we understand that? Do, do, we, do we see this, this phrase that pops into here talking about uh, the steadfast love 
this amazing love that God comes into covenant with, where he commits himself to his people. He says, I'm your God and you are my people and I will show you steadfast love. The scriptures exult in this concept. Psalm 25, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimony. Psalm 63, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 130, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. One of the Spanish translations calls that his amor inagotable, his inexhaustible love, that it doesn't matter how long you squeeze it, you can't get to the last drop. That that is his love towards us. Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Psalm 103, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Psalm 107, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is who God is saying he is. Do we believe that? And what's our attitude about that? Do we really want God to be that way? Do we really want the full implications of that to be true. See, Jonah understood it. He believed it. And at some level, we may begin to see and understand, accept, and even rejoice in God's steadfast love towards sinners. And, and we're all in progress. Uh, there, there's no one who's got their mind fully wrapped around this. There's no one uh, this side of glory who can say, I've been totally transformed in every ounce of my being. I'm embracing this and trusting it and believing this. But, but God has us growing. But how do we think about this really? What is our attitude towards God doing that? Uh, 75 years ago this week uh, was the greatest naval disaster, known naval disaster in history. Uh, World War II was coming to an end. There were Germans trapped in what is uh, now Poland, and the Soviets were closing in. And the only way out was by sea. And 10,000 people got on board the German ship Gustloff. It was gonna be their freedom, their salvation. They were going to escape and they pulled offshore, and the Soviet Navy sank it. And as many as 9,000 people lost their lives. So we can, we can look at something, we can think this is the right way. Uh, and find out that we're in the wrong boat. And, and Jonah, in one way, he had the right head knowledge. And yet, Jonah's in the wrong boat. Jonah's saying, I know this is who God is, but I'm relying more on my ethnic identity, my nationality, perhaps on his identity as a prophet, as being of the chosen people, of not being one of these vile sinners like the Ninevites. 
and he's in the wrong boat. And it's easy for us to see, look at Jonah and see him so angry, and he's so angry that God would forgive someone like these wretched sinners. Or, or we can look at the older brother and the prodigal son and say, look at this, he's so messed up, he won't accept that his brothers come back, and he's angry that grace and favor is being shown to that wretched sinner. And, and, and we see that there's hatred in that brother for the younger brother. And, and we see in Jonah that there's hatred when looking out at the Ninevites. I mean, he, he gets up on the hillside and he gets his booth and it's like, you know, if, if it were 2020, there'd be a meme of him with popcorn hoping to see destruction come in on the city. And it's so easy for me to judge Jonah. It's so easy for me to judge that older brother say, they are so wrong. They are so messed up. I'm so much better than them. <laughs> and when I do that, I've become the older brother. I've become Jonah. And I'm also missing the heart of God. Because what we see here is God's graciousness, not just towards wanton sinners. We see his graciousness towards self-righteous sinners too. It's easy to miss in this passage, but what does God do? He comes to Jonah and he asks questions. What does he say? Verse four, do you do well to be angry? Or again in verse nine, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Verse 11, should I not pity Nineveh? See, when God comes in with questions, he's coming in with his steadfast love. He's coming in and saying, you're lost and you're broken and I'm pursuing you. Adam, where are you? Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you do well to be angry? God is coming in and he's saying, Jonah, you need my steadfast love too. You, you, you've been relying on yourself. You, you, you've been relying on being part of the people who know the truth and on your head knowledge. And, and all of those things I gave you as gifts and they're good, but they're not the main thing. I am the main thing. And I want to pour out abundant love on you too. Can you see that you're broken too? Can you see that you need me? Can you see that you are as needy of divine favor as the Ninevites are? That without this relationship with me, you're just as lost as the vilest sinner? Jonah, in your heart of hearts, you're not any better than any of these people. God is coming in and saying, Jonah, I want to shower this on you too. Can you see it? Can you understand the joy in my way and enter in? Will you do that? Will we do that? 
where we understand that there is this abundant grace, this love that God offers to unjust sinners, like the Ninevites, like the younger brothers, maybe like us, or many people around us. And what about offering mercy and steadfast love to self-righteous hypocrites like Jonah, like the older brother, maybe like us, people around us. This might be more subtle, but God wants to pursue hard hearts. And he is relentless. But God is good and he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. And that's for all kinds of sinners. Now, a few takeaways. Because I think we need a few major takeaways. Uh, One, what do you think God is really like? Uh, What is he really like to you? Do you you have this image of this frowning, irate judge? Uh, Do you have the image of the finger wagger? Sorry, I can't do the accent. Do Do you have the image of someone who's just scolding and always telling you you're not good enough? Or do you know that there's a father who loves and who gives abundantly? Takeaway number two. How do you really feel about that? Do you really want a God who is that gracious and that loving? Not just to you, but to people who aren't like you to people who aren't your nationality, who aren't your background, who aren't your denomination, people who uh, aren't from your religious heritage, people who aren't from your socioeconomic class, people that are in whatever group of people that we would look at and go, those people are really wrong. And it's, you know, election year. We hear a whole lot about groups of people that are completely wrong. Do we, do we think God's steadfast love is for people like that, wherever you are on the political spectrum? Uh, parents, this might be particularly important to you. What kind of attitude are you helping your kids cultivate towards God? Is it everything just about obedience and doing what's right? Or is it about learning about God's heart? and letting our kids see us rejoice in the Lord. To love him. To seek intimacy with him. Uh, Third takeaway. Nationalism and racism. Jonah apparently is a racist. He doesn't want salvation coming to anyone outside his race. He, he says, I want this to be for my people, not for those people. I want this for my nation, not for that nation. Let's exalt my nation. Let's not, let's not help anybody else out. 
Let's make it all about us. I want this to be for people like me. Uh, there, there are people I don't want in the club. Uh, may, maybe, maybe there's a place for like a club of not quite as good blessing as my club, but, but I want my club to be exclusive. And the message of scripture is, it's a very exclusive club. Entrance only comes through the blood of Jesus. And everybody who has nothing but the blood is received and is equal. And what does that do to my nationalism and my racism? Uh, Fourth takeaway. Uh, Did you know that the world is predisposed to viewing us a certain way? Most of the surrounding culture, when they look at us, they think that we are Jonah. They think that we're the older brother. There is a natural predisposition in the culture right now to look at Christians and to receive messages and words from Christians with the assumption that these are people who think they're better than me. These are people who think they know more than me. They think they know what is right and I don't. They're angry at me. They want to condemn me. They want to judge me. How do we live in light of that being the prevailing attitude? How are we intentional about showing love? The culture does not think that we are a people, merciful and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. How intentional are we about showing that to everyone? How do we regulate that in our social media interactions? How do we regulate that in our conversations? How do we regulate that in reaching out to people? Which is uh, the fifth takeaway. Do you want others to hear the message? If, if all this is true, if there is this God who abundantly loves, why wouldn't I want 120,000 people in Nineveh to know about it? The, the, these people who don't know their right hand from their left hand, it doesn't mean they were so ignorant they hadn't figured that out yet, that they had no moral compass. They had no way of knowing this is the right path to go. And God is saying, wouldn't we want them to know about me? Wouldn't we want them to share in that? And and if we've really gotten it, if we've really understood this truth about God and if we've embraced who he is, one of the natural consequences is that we want others to know. And we engage in all manner of ways for people to hear that message, for people to experience it in their interactions with us, that they are experiencing love, they're experiencing kindness, they're experiencing generosity, and they're hearing about Jesus. And that we're doing whatever we can do to see that the kingdom advances throughout the world, that Christ and his kingdom will advance. Because if, if God so loved the Ninevites that he would send Jonah to preach. What does he do to make sure that his steadfast love really is known among the nations? He sent his son Jesus into this world. But this isn't just a message of a theoretical steadfast love. This is a message written in red. This is a message of steadfast love of Jesus with his blood pouring out on the cross.
because vile sinners and hypocritical sinners and all of us alike, we have no hope except that Jesus is the perfect, spotless, sinless one. And because he loved us so much, he went to that cross and he endured its torture, its pain, its shame. And he did it for us. He did it for this world. He did it because he's pursuing younger brothers and older brothers. He's pursuing Ninevites and he's pursuing this lost prophet from northern Israel. He did it because he's pursuing you. And he's pursuing the people around you. God is showing his steadfast love. And it's there for those who will believe and who will embrace what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are who you are. That you are gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Help us. Uh, we repeat the words and we don't yet really understand what they mean. Show us your faithful love. And enable us by the power of your spirit to show that love to others. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.